0: Children and parents kind of trigger one another. So a child's anxiety sets off a parent's anxiety because anxiety is a really uncomfortable feeling. So often parents are learning the skill set along with their child. And a part of it is learning how to tolerate the discomfort rather than immediately giving into it.
1: Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reaver, and today I am so excited to be bringing the prolific Don Hubner to the podcast. One of the coolest things about making this show is that I continue to get to connect with people whose work I've not only been following for years, but people whose work and books have literally impacted my family in such a meaningful way. And then I get to ask them everything I want to know, and hopefully I covered the same things that you would ask if you were sitting in my chair. So today is one of those conversations, as we have owned and have been using Dawn's books for many years. And if she isn't already on your radar, Dr. Dawn Hubner is a clinical psychologist, a parent coach, and popular speaker specializing in the many phases of childhood anxiety. She recognized the need for lively, easy-to-read materials to help children practice the strategies they were learning in her office, so she created a format effective for 6- to 12-year-olds, the What-To-Do Guides for Kids, which teach complex psychological concepts using language and humor easily understood by kids. Her newest book, Outsmarting Worry, maintains her distinctive voice while adding a layer of detail and sophistication appreciated by older children and teens. And that's the book that Dawn and I are talking about today, Outsmarting Worry, The Older Kid's Guide to Overcoming Anxiety. I really love this book because Dawn has a real gift for creating practical, doable, interactive toolkits, for lack of a better word, to help kids feel empowered to take control of their emotional experience and make changes that can make the way they're moving through life just feel so much better. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hey, Dawn, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hi, thanks for having
1: me. Well, I'm excited. I'm always excited for talking to any of my guests. But as we were just discussing, I'm a little bit of a fangirl with your history of writing just such great books, useful, practical books to go through with your kids. We have... I was going to say I have a bunch on my shelf, but I've actually realized I've lent them out and I haven't gotten the back. Uh, so Charlie okay. Charlie and Mark, if you're listening to this, I want my books back. Um, but you've written so many great books. And I'm excited to talk about your new book, Outsmarting Worry, which came out in 2017. But before we dive into the book, would you just take a minute to tell us who you are and how you got into this work, what your sweet spot is in the work that you do?
0: Sure. I am a clinical psychologist. I have a private practice in New Hampshire in the U.S., and I see children ages 12 and under and their parents. And I'm also the author of eight books at this point. And my specialty area is anxiety. I kind of fell into that. It wasn't really by design. Um, I fell into it by having an anxious child. And I had an anxious child at a time that I was a psychologist, but I didn't really know much about treating anxiety. And I parented in the way that seemed logical and loving to me, not realizing that I was inadvertently feeding his anxiety. And the more I accommodated him, the worse things got. And um, we were a ways down that road before I realized that I needed to, to understand something differently, I needed to do something differently. And I kind of newly discovered cognitive behavioral therapy, which had been out for a while, I just hadn't been exposed to it in my training. And um, we went down a very different path with our son. And I became kind of hooked on cognitive behavioral therapy and started learning about it to use it professionally, and started writing books that taught cognitive behavioral skills to kids. And things kind of grew from there.
1: That's great. Yeah, I As you're talking, you know, my first exposure to therapy as a client was in my 20s. And I went to the Albert Ellis Institute in New York for therapy. And he was the founder of rational motive behavioral therapy. And I think that's why when I discovered your books, and the first one that we had was what to do When your temper flared, which was just a lifesaver for us. And I think that's why I resonated with it so much the cognitive behavioral approach and just uh, it just really. It's such a respectful way to support humans and, you know, and especially right. kids to discover who they are and how they can actually have control over their experiences. So, um, so that's great. And I think, uh, I think it can be a really powerful tool for parents.
0: Right. You know, the really exciting thing is that kids are eager to learn. And they can be taught that feelings are okay, all feelings are okay. And that there are things that they can do to manage feelings more effectively to cope more effectively in ways that are really transformative. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And that's
0: exciting. Yeah.
1: Yeah, especially at a time in your life, you know, so many kids just feel like they have no control over any aspect of their life. And so to help them see actually, you can, you know, you can actually learn a lot and, and, and think about just move through the world differently. it's very empowering.
0: Right, right. And you know, I think especially um, anxiety is a tough feeling for kids, it makes kids feel weak, it makes kids feel scared. Um, And so for kids to learn that they can turn that around, um, I think is important and great.
1: Yes. And It's very appropriate that there's an alarm. Yes, yes.
0: emergency, (laughs) emergency. That's a good segue into what worry does. I planned that,
1: everyone. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So, well, why don't you introduce us to your new book, Outsmarting Worry? Tell us who it's for and what you hope to do through the book.
0: So Outsmarting Worry is for older kids. It's for 9 to 13-year-olds. And um, it's written in a way that children can read it and understand it independently, but it really will be most effective if a child is doing it with a support person, if a parent or a counselor or or supportive adult is, is reading it along with a child. And it teaches children about the mechanics of anxiety, why anxiety happens, why we feel the way that we do in our bodies, why we feel the way we do in our brains, and then really importantly, how we can begin to push back against it, how we can begin to challenge anxiety and take control in a different way. And it turns out that the more we challenge our worry, the smaller the worry become. So the book is teaching kids a very specific skill set that they can use to challenge their anxiety.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I really like the way that you, you do spend time in the beginning of the book really just explaining, you know, what, what is happening in your brain, why this is happening. And, and I do think that especially at that age, kids are so interested in brain science. Well, at least my child is I know many kids are, you know, they're curious about this stuff. Uh And so I think that's a great way to get them engaged in it. Um, I actually just wanted to even ask you to take a step back. Is there a difference between anxiety and worry? You know, do you consider them to be one and the same?
0: Yeah, I use the words interchangeably. So there's there's a technical difference between worry and fear or anxiety and fear. Fear is typically about something that's actually happening. And worry or anxiety is about something that you anticipate happening, something that might happen. But for the purposes of my books, I use anxiety and worry in the same way.
1: Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to, to be clear on that. Um, so before we talk more about the practical strategies, because I really do want to spend time going through some of the ways that you explain to kids what they can do you know, in their lives and how they can reframe their experience with worry and then also what parents can do to support them. But let's just, again, to take a step back. What is normal when it comes to worry? Like, how do we know if there, if our child is anxious or if this is just typical behavior that's going on? What are some signs that let us know, oh, this, we need to be paying attention to this?
0: Yeah. So worry is is really a perfectly normal phenomena. It's the sign of an active, creative brain that's taking in experiences and trying to make sense of them. So it absolutely is not our goal to do away with all worry. What becomes problematic is when kids worry about something. So they begin to think about something that might go wrong or might be problematic or dangerous in some way. And they immediately assume that that's accurate, like that just because they're thinking about something or anticipating something, it is an actual danger.
1: We'll be right back after this quick break.
0: And then they start acting based on that assumption. That's where the problem comes in. So it's not as if kids who have trouble with anxiety necessarily have more anxious thoughts. It's more that they believe them and they act on them. And that's the part that's problematic.
1: Hmm. Right. Because some level of fear or concern is appropriate in certain situations, right? Correct.
0: Correct correct.
1: Okay. So as a parent, would we recognize it that our child seems to be perseverating on certain ideas or maybe responding in a way that just seems inappropriate to the circumstance?
0: Yeah. So what parents will notice is that um, kids are really repetitive in their concerns anxious kids often do lots of reassurance seeking or avoidance um, and typically have trouble doing things that come more easily to other children. They have trouble doing those things because they're nervous about them. Although sometimes they'll say that's boring or I just don't like such and such rather than directly linking it to feeling afraid.
1: So how do we know then, you know, some of them might be really good at deflecting and coming up with other reasons. Are there other I don't know, signs that we would be like, hmm, I think there's something else going on here.
0: Yeah, you know, most typically it's um, if a child uh, suddenly dislikes something that they used to like, you know, they used to be okay going to an activity and then they're not okay anymore, or they start asking lots and lots of questions, or they develop stomach aches or other physical symptoms before they need to do something I think parents are often very much aware that their kids are feeling anxious, even when the child isn't necessarily aware.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I think for some of us, this was the case for me two years ago. It may take us a while. And then when we realize that we're like, oh, all the signs were there. And I just was thinking it was something else or trying to downplay it. And then there can be guilt associated with that realization.
0: Right, but it's common. I mean, yes, parents often feel bad after the fact, but it's really understandable. You know, we want to take what our kids are saying as if it is fully accurate and true, and we want to support our children. So it's understandable to kind of walk for a ways down a worry road with a child before you realize that's what you're doing. Right. And that leads to something that's really important that I, I touched on when I was talking about my own situation with my son, and that is that. The kinds of things that we're inclined to do as loving and supportive parents, so things like reassuring or allowing our children to step out of uncomfortable situations, those turn out to be the things that strengthen anxiety, that Mm. feed anxiety. Um, Why, Why is that? Well, because they bring so much relief. So let's say, um, let's say you have a concern about germs. And so you start becoming very careful about washing your hands and about touching things and about making sure that everybody else touches their hands. And so um, you begin policing the rest of your family about hand washing. And so let's say you're a a child in that situation and you see your mom preparing a meal and you ask her, did you wash your hands? So it seems normal for a parent to reassure yes i did wash my hands but by answering that question with a reassurance you're strengthening the anxiety by stepping into this notion that it's important for you to be monitoring and so i'm going to answer and there really is a danger here and so i'm going to engage with you about this content so when you're kind of accommodating and overly reassuring it ends up empowering the anxiety. Mm -hmm. And that can be hard to understand because when parents reassure or accommodate their children's anxiety, right in the moment, their child feels relief. So it seems like the right thing to do, but it's really stepping into this loop. And maybe we can talk for a moment about what this loop is that's part of what feeds anxiety and keeps it going. That sounds great. Let's do it. Yeah, so um, anxiety always begins with the perception of danger, and danger is really broadly defined. So anything that seems like it could be problematic or uncomfortable or scary or hard or not go well is a danger. And when you perceive danger, you then feel nervous or afraid, and that makes total sense. And so, because you're feeling nervous or afraid, you begin to do things called safety behaviors. And safety behaviors are a whole constellation of behaviors designed to help you feel less nervous and to protect you from the danger. So, safety behaviors are things like asking reassurance questions, washing your hands, not touching certain things, needing to be told something over and over again, avoiding. Like, those are all safety behaviors. And safety behaviors make you feel better. That's their purpose, to make you feel less anxious. But they're problematic because they they prevent you from ever seeing that the thing that you thought was dangerous was not actually dangerous, that the whole thing was a false alarm. And so when parents step into this, like they accommodate their children's safety behaviors or they um, accompany their child in doing the safety behaviors, they're they're keeping their child or they're not doing anything to get their child out of that loop, that anxiety loop, where you feel nervous, you feel in danger, you do a safety behavior, you feel relieved, but you feel like you have to do that safety behavior then in order to stay safe.
1: Mm. Yeah. So it's a vicious cycle and we're kind of jumping in there by by advocating for those safety behaviors.
0: Right, right. Now, it's not the case that parents can just refuse to do the safety behaviors or ignore their child's requests for reassurance because kids come unglued when we do that. You know, that just seems mean. So it's important for parents to have a different way of understanding what's happening. It's not that they're withholding from their child, it's that they're trying not to feed or empower worry. So one of the things that's really important for both parents and children is to do something called externalizing anxiety. And externalizing anxiety means to think about your worry kind of like it's a little creature, like it's a little bug or pest or bully, something separate from you And when you listen to your worry and you obey it, you follow the rules that it sets up, you're empowering it. And when you challenge it or push back against it, you're ultimately reducing it. And when both parents and children have that basic understanding, it becomes possible for parents to say things to kids like, you know, if I answer that question, I'm going to be feeding your worry. Or I know your worry wants you to think X, but your worry is not the boss of this. So it gives them a way to still be empathic with their children without inadvertently feeding the anxiety.
1: Yeah, I love that. You know, we used to have, I think when Ash was like four, we had the mad monster. That was our externalization mm-hmm. of the anger, the thing that was right, going right. on. And now I talk with him you know, about his lizard brain, you know, tell that I uh-huh. got to simmer down, like he is totally feeding you a line of crap right now. Uh-huh. But uh-huh. Um, so I love that, you know, just calling it for what it is. And uh, I think that can be such a powerful tool. My question for you, I'm wondering, just what has been your experience in the kids that you've worked with in terms of how do they actually go from reading your book and learning these things to then actually making them a part of their life. Because even for adults, it's so hard to do this kind of work, I think, to, in the moment, to be able to access those tools. What does it look like?
0: Right. So kids definitely need support to do that. And that's one of the reasons why my books are most effective when a parent is doing them along with a child. So kids get some benefit from intellectually understanding the kinds of things that we're talking about, but they get substantially more benefit from actually implementing them. And the the books kind of walk kids through how to do that. Or if kids are in therapy, they often get walked through how to do that. But ultimately, they need someone like a parent who's there in the moment reminding them, okay, this is a time to use a strategy. This is a time to talk back against your worry. You don't need to let your worry be the boss of this. So kids need help figuring out how to do it in real time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I find that once kids have had some amount of experience with not immediately capitulating to what their worry is telling them, things kind of click for them and they're able to see, oh, yeah, this is just a feeling that I have, or this is just a, th- a set of thoughts I'm having right now, and I don't need to obey this, or I don't need to do whatever my worry is telling me. And then they begin to be able to be more independent in terms of using the skill set or using the strategies on their own.
1: We'll be right back after this quick break.
3: When you talk in the book about this
1: idea of looking for evidence and, you know, if we look around, we probably won't find much evidence to prove that our worry is actually valid. Um, right. And so it sounds like likewise, the more evidence, you know, if they try this with the parents or someone else's support, lots of reminders, and they start to have little successes, then they're actually creating contrary evidence to show them that indeed your worry is a uh, making a big fuss for nothing kind of thing.
0: Right, that's right. So looking for evidence is a really useful strategy, but it's important to remember that worry wants certainty. So mm. you know, if you think of this little externalized worry bug sort of thing, and it's it's constantly saying are you sure are you sure and often when kids are seeking reassurance they're wanting their parents to promise a bad thing's not going to happen you're not going to get sick i'm not going to forget to pick you up you're not going to mess up in what you're doing you know kids are wanting certainty and we can't have certainty and one of the things that is important for kids to learn is that the idea that we have to have certainty is kind of a myth. That's not the way the world works. And we need to go based on what's most likely. We, we, we do all kinds of things based on most what's most likely. And that's fine. It's only worry that's telling us we have to be sure.
1: Yeah, I you know, so I'm listening to all of this. I'm like, This is so great for our kids. And it's also so great for all of us listening to this as adults. So I imagine, you know, is part of your work also helping parents kind of get in touch with their own worry because, I mean, all parents worry about their kids. For those of us raising differently wired kids, many of us have some pretty substantial concerns about just the future unknowns and we are wanting certainty. So how does your work, I'm just curious, overlap with the parents that you work with?
0: Yeah. So parents are really, a really important part of the work that I do. I do a lot of parent training, parent education, parent guidance, often, Anxious children have anxious parents, not only the kind of worry that you talk about, about, you know, worry about a neuro uh, atypical child, but also just parents have trouble with anxiety more broadly. And children and parents kind of trigger one another. So a child's anxiety sets off a parent's anxiety because anxiety is a really uncomfortable feeling. So often parents are learning the skill set along with their child. And a part of it is learning how to tolerate the discomfort rather than immediately giving into it. Because it turns out that if we tolerate the nervous feeling or tolerate the uncertain feeling, but still move towards whatever it is that's giving us that feeling, the feeling dissipates. And we see that really nothing bad happens or we are capable of handling the situation Um, And that's a real revelation, like to see that just because I'm nervous, it doesn't mean that I can't do Mm -hmm. whatever the thing is. Um, I talk to kids about things that are scary but safe and help kids to be able to identify that there are lots and lots of things that that are scary, but they're safe for us. They're not dangerous. Just because we're afraid doesn't mean that we're actually in danger. Right.
1: Right. And I would also, you know, before the call, we were talking about the work I used to do in writing for teenagers and, and tween-agers, if that's a word. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what I, especially for this particular audience, the 8 to 12, 9 to 13 age group, taking safe risks and knowing that you can survive them is actually such an important part of their gaining confidence for becoming teenagers. So there's right. so many levels for how this doing this work at this age can benefit kids.
0: Right. Yes.
1: So I have a couple of kind of random questions. I've been thinking, how do I connect these? But one of my questions is, I would imagine that an instinct for some parents, if they are noticing their child is overly concerned or anxious about a situation that the parent might feel doesn't warrant that level of concern, that we might just downplay it or dismiss it. So you talked about how too much reassurance or pulling them from an activity can be harmful. What is the result when a parent just kind of dismisses a child's concerns?
0: Yeah, so I think we always want to acknowledge and validate and empathize with our children's feelings, regardless of what those feelings are. That doesn't mean that we have to agree with the feeling, but I think we want to recognize them. When you do this externalization, it becomes easy to talk to a child about your worry, like your externalized worry, is making you think X, making you think you can't handle this, making you think it's going to be disastrous, making you think this is a big deal. So you're kind of putting the strength or the intensity of the feeling off on the worry rather than being dismissive of a child's experience of something. And that turns out to be a helpful thing. Um, It's tricky because it doesn't work particularly well to force a child to do something You know, we all know that some kids get really explosive when they're forced to do it, or they completely come to pieces, or some kids will kind of white knuckle it. You know, they'll do something because they have to do it, but they don't really benefit. They don't really take from that the experience of being capable. And so kids really gain the most in terms of confidence when they electively step towards difficult situations. And one of the things that's really useful is it doesn't have to be an all or none sort of thing. So there's a metaphor that often gets used about jumping into a swimming pool. And when you jump into a pool, you're getting used to the cold water. So you can jump into a scary situation. You can kind of thrust yourself into the situation to get used to it all at once, like jumping into a pool, or you can go in a step-by-step way, same way that you can gradually lower yourself into a pool and when kids are nervous about something it's often possible not not to like you know push them or force them into the full situation but to help them work out kind of a hierarchy where they're gradually moving towards that situation and learning how to do that is is important and empowering to kids to gradually approach something that's scary for them or hard for them
1: and then our job as parents is to recognize and notice and reinforce, you know, I imagine just kind of, hey, I noticed that that was really hard and you did this anyway, or I saw that you did this, you know, how did it feel? How did you do that? You know, I imagine that's kind of our biggest job in that moment.
0: Absolutely. And when your child is having specific difficulty with anxiety, I think it's helpful to slip in the language about the worry. So to say something like, you didn't let your worry be in charge of that, or you took control of that, even though your worry was telling you you couldn't. So I really want children to understand that they don't have to let their worry be the boss. And so I'm always looking for ways to underline that, underline when a child has acted in that way.
1: Yeah, that externalization of worry and just making it something else, something that's not fused with you. I can, I mean, right. even just that act, I can imagine just has huge repercussions for kids.
2: Right. Yes.
1: So you mentioned resistance. I'm just wondering, what about kids who are avoidant of even looking at this book or, you know, kind of going there. They think it's not going to work on them. Have you had experience with kids who've been reluctant to do this kind of work on themselves and any strategies?
0: Um, Yeah, you know, it's interesting because there are numbers of reviews on um, all of my books that talk about kids being angry at the start and then quickly getting pulled into the book. I really make an an effort in all of my books to completely normalize whatever the topic is, whatever it is that a child is struggling with, and trying to use some humor and just helping kids not feel ashamed of whatever's going on with them. Um, I think for kids that are really hugely resistant, or and that often comes from being scared. You know, kids are just so under the thrall of their anxiety that it's hard for them to imagine challenging it in any way. And for kids like that, I think that parents can be educating themselves either with my book or with um, something that's written specifically for parents. And parents can be starting to use the skill set or to do things differently themselves. And that in and of itself changes things. It requires a child to manage in a somewhat different way. And that can still be really useful.
3: Yeah,
1: I imagine if we even talk out loud about our process, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I was really concerned about this. But I, you know, just even at the dinner table, talking to your partner about something and modeling what we want them to do that will, right. over time, right. will wear them
0: down. <laughs> right. But even, you know, more directly, like you can talk about sort of family goals or what you want for your child. You know, you might talk about in our family, we don't let our fears stop us from doing things. Or in our family, we feel like our world is too strong, too small if we just stay within our comfort zone. So we really value taking chances. We really value challenging ourselves and then talking to kids, you know, about how to do that. And it's okay to carve the challenges into tiny, tiny steps because we want kids to feel successful. Um, You know, we don't want them to feel like they're facing a challenge that is just so overwhelming to them and they're not going to succeed. So I work with parents a lot about how to make the steps small enough so that their child can succeed and succeeding feels good. And then you take the next step and eventually you get where you want to go. Right.
1: I love that. And I love that language of just saying, you know, we value taking chances Mm -hmm. and that's beautiful. I love that. So for parents who are listening, who they don't have your book yet and they're feeling inspired to tackle the anxiety happening in their home with their child. Can you give us one takeaway? I mean, there's so many takeaways already, but what's like one thing they can do right now that they can start making an impact or supporting their child in this way?
0: Yeah, I think that the most important thing is the externalization piece to start thinking about worry as separate from you or separate from your child. And there's this question about who's going to win? Is the worry going to win or is your child going to win? And you're helping your child learn how to be the one to win.
1: That's excellent. Well, thank you. This has been um, super insightful and just a pleasure to chat with you about all this. The book really is it's just really beautifully written and all of your material, is so accessible for kids and you just break things down and talk about them using normal language, but not in a condescending way. It's just really, you have a really nice balance and it's very accessible for kids. So well done. Thank you. And for uh, listeners who want to connect with you and, and find out more about your work and your books, where can they reach you
0: online? Uh, I have a website, dawnhebnerphd.com, and um, there's information about my work and there are articles for parents, kind of self help tips for parents, brief tips, um, descriptions of my books, and things of that sort.
1: Perfect. And listeners, I'll leave links to to Dawn's website and to all of her books because you should check them all out. She's got a great collection. Um, I'll leave those on the show notes page. So uh, Don, thank you so much again. It was a pleasure to connect with you and to share your work with the TILT audience and uh, hope to have you back sometime.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. To go deeper into this episode, visit the extensive show notes page. For every episode, there's a dedicated page on my website with links to all the resources mentioned, a full transcript, and a podcast player with key takeaways marked so you can easily go back and re-listen to the sections you're most interested in. Just go to tiltparenting.com podcast and select this episode. The Tilt Parenting Podcast is hosted by me, Debbie Reber, author of the book Differently Wired and the founder of Tilt Parenting. This episode was edited by Andrea Curtis Amasquita and show notes were put together by myself, Andrea and Lindsay McFadden. If you get a lot out of this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. On Patreon, you can sign up to make a small monthly contribution, as little as $2 a month, and it's super easy to sign up. Just go to patreon.com slash to learn more or click on the Patreon link on any show notes page. To follow Tilt Parenting on social media, go to at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook. Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by the listeners who need it by subscribing and leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information about this podcast or any of the resources that Tilt offers, visit TiltParenting.com.